Well, amen. Aren't you glad he cares for you? How many times in your life have you felt that he didn't? I believe that if we were honest, there may be more times than we'd like to admit. But he does care for us, doesn't he? And when we take the time to dig into his word and to truly reflect on his promises, we can't help but say, yea, the Lord does care. He does. In spite of the circumstance or situation, we have to admit he cares. And uh, boy, that's not always easy, but it is a reality. What a great song. What a tremendous message. Take your Bible, turn over to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. We're going to read just a few passages, a few verses, and then we'll go from there. But again, glad to have you with us today, and if you're visiting, we are certainly thrilled that you would take the time to come and join us and be a part of the service. If you're always here, faithful, we can't tell you how enormously grateful we are for the faithfulness of God's people, you. And uh, boy, it doesn't happen without God's people. You know, the church is a building, it's not a building, it's people. And so, you know, without you, this ceases to exist. Uh, And wherever two or more gathered, he said he'd be in the midst. Well, if there weren't two or more here today, we'd just basically be walking in a, just an empty building. But it's church today because you're here. It's God's house. Amen? It's God's house. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. I did get a um, uh, text from Brother Cavanaugh just a little bit ago, right at the end of Sunday school stating that they arrived safely there in Mexico and that they were headed to church already themselves. So they're headed to church now. They're in the midst of their service even as we speak, just as we are here. I think they're in the same time zone or maybe one behind us. I'm not sure. They're really not far behind us. So anyway, you be praying for that group that went to Mexico. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 The Bible says, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world, and things which are despised, hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. I want to stop right there and I'm just going to consider and look at those particular verses today and make an application basically from them. You know, we are introduced to this passage and that particular passage draws a picture of those that Christ chooses or those that Christ calls into service. It draws a picture for us. It helps us to understand who God is seeking and who God will use. And from the world's perspective, this is a very unlikely group that he's describing here. It's certainly an unlikely group to, to successfully promote the gospel and spread Christianity around the world. And yet he did. Early on in Christianity, the world, the known world, and all the world had known and heard the gospel. What they did with it was up to them. And unfortunately today, we have the results of what they did with it. There's many cultures and many countries who do not adhere to the word of God. But that isn't God's fault because God sent out people and early on he 
chose men and He chose women to go forth and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the world was reached. We're reminded of Peter and John and how they viewed how they were viewed in the world's eyes. Uh, look at Acts chapter 4, verse 13, not long after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These two men of God are out proclaiming and preaching the word of God. And note their reputation. Note how they're viewed by the world. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, we read, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. Talking about those that were being preached to, those that were in authority and in positions of authority. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. I mean, even though these two men were not the most learned in the sense of heading to the university and getting a diploma or some kind of, some kind of certificate of completion, the fact was they had lived life and they had walked with the Master. They had been with Jesus Christ and that was something that the world could not deny. They were ignorant and they were unlearned in the world's eyes, but they were certainly beyond measure close to Jesus. And boy, I tell you, it made an impact and it made a difference in the culture they lived in. The main reason for the choices that God makes is outlined in verse 29 here of our passage. Why in the world does he use those that he chooses to use? Why does he come along and say, not many wise men after flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called? Why? Why has he chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise? How's come the weak things? How's come the base things? How's come those things which are despised? How's come those things which are not? Why does God choose them? Verse 29 outlines it and makes it clear. He says that no flesh should glory in his presence. When it's all said and done, he wants to make sure that he is elevated, that he is magnified, that he is exalted, that only Christ gets the glory. So God chooses an unlikely lot. And for you and I this morning, that ought to be a blessing and an encouragement to us. Most, if not all, fit somewhere in this passage. (laughs) And yet there's no limit to what God can do with us if we'll simply say yes. If we'll choose to say yes. So that makes the choice ours, doesn't it? So... I want to share just a few examples in Scripture from the Word of God today. And I just want to note this passage and remind you and try to encourage you today. So many people feel inept at serving the Lord. They feel they have nothing to offer the Lord Jesus Christ or others. And yet in the Word of God, we know that those are the ones who God uses in many cases. Now, it does not exclude others. Be careful. But he wants us to realize and understand that even if someone has tremendous potential, even if someone has great riches, even if somebody has this, um, I guess, a stamp of approval in the world and say, boy, now there's somebody that can make it in the world. Even so, that person must see themselves basically like this. So it does not exclude people that are successful in the world. But it certainly opens the door to us who are not. 
if you know what I mean. And I'm certainly glad that the Lord was willing to use me, and I know you're glad he'll, he's willing to use you too. So let's take a look at a few passages and look at a couple characters in the Bible that reinforce this truth. That helps to understand that I don't care what you think about yourself, how you feel about yourself, that God could use you today if you just let him, if you just choose to allow him. Father, we come to you. We need you today. Help us, Lord, to be encouraged from your word. We love you. We pray for your leadership in our life. Father, may we not allow the devil to discourage us or convince us that we are unusable or that we are unable to be effective in your work, fulfilling your will and purpose for our life. Lord, may all of us, Father, come to you and say, use me. What I have is yours. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. I think of David. Turn, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16, all the way back there in the Old Testament. We're going to look at verses 4 through 11. The Bible says, And Samuel did that which the Lord spake, and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming, and said, Comest thou peaceably? He said, Peaceably. I am come to sacrifice unto the Lord. Sanctify yourselves, and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons. That's David's daddy. And he called them to the sacrifice. Now again, we know that he was told to anoint the next king of Israel. This prophet would now do just that. And here we find him with Jesse and his sons. The Bible says, and he, he, he goes on to say, And it came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on the, his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadad, And made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. Then Jesse made Shema to pass by, and he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. And again, Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel. And Samuel said unto Jesse, The Lord hath not chosen these. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are here all thy children? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. Well, I'll tell you what, here in the passage we are, uh, you know, given a, a window to see into the past. And we recognize this particular time of a time when Israel is is in a mess with the king that they have. And God's going to anoint another king. And so he, he sends Samuel there to, to the house of Jesse and they, they, they come to the sacrifice. And all of a sudden, his eldest son, Eliab, comes and stands before Samuel. And, and as Samuel looks over this massive, I mean, I mean, just muscular, massive, molten steel, he looks at him and says, Wow! Now there's a man. 
Look at how strong he is. Look at how, how straight up he stands. Look at, he is so, in, I mean, he's all man. He's all man. I mean, certainly he's got to be the chosen one. Certainly he has to be the next king. I mean, we have Saul now. He's ahead above all the others. Certainly God's going to choose someone who is going to stand out. Someone that is unique and different. Someone that can represent our nation with great honor and, and, and great respect. And can stand before the other kings and intimidate even with a look. Certainly it's got to be Eliad. He's the man. And God says, uh-uh. No, not Eliad. Not Eliab. And he goes on to make a statement that's amazing to me. He says here in the passage, and this passage is often misunderstood and it is misquoted for the wrong reasons. But then, in that context, he looks at Samuel or speaks to Samuel and says, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. He's not saying that the outward isn't important in the sense that people see it. Because listen, let me tell you something. All that Samuel saw was what? The outward. Do you know what Samuel is? A man. He's a person like you and I. This idea that Christians are running around today saying, God looks on the heart. He doesn't care how it looks, how you look on the outside. It doesn't matter what you do or what you say or how you live. The truth is God knows your heart. That's ridiculous because, listen, I don't necessarily need to just live before God. I also have to live before man. Matter of fact, Jesus Christ, he grew in wisdom before God and man. Why is it that today we feel we have no responsibility to mankind? Why is it we feel as believers that under grace we don't have to live a certain standard or a certain level, that we don't have to be Christ-like, even though the Bible says we ought to be Christ-like? Why is that? Because we've taken scriptures and we've twisted them and rested them and turned them to mean what they don't mean. Yes, God cares what's in the heart, but God also cares how you look because that's how people see you. But Eliab, he shows up and he's a, he looks like the next king for sure. And God says, nope, I'm looking a little bit deeper than you are, Samuel. See, what we learn is that God doesn't always choose the one at the head of the line. And boy, in the world in which we live, listen, we're looking for the guy or the gal that gets to the head of the line, has the best marks in college or school, has the best ability to run or to jump. We, we like the guy who put more balls through the hoop and more balls across the goal line. We're always looking for the one at the head of the line. But God doesn't always choose the one at the head of the line. See, God doesn't always choose the one everybody else would. I mean, we look at people today and we say, wow, man, if I only look like her or look like him, if I only could speak like he does, if, if I could only be, uh, uh, be like him or be like her, then God could use me. God could do something great with me. No, that's not true at all, my friend. He doesn't always choose the one everybody else would. In verse 6 and 7 again, it came to pass that when they were come, they looked on Eliab and he said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Surely this is him. This has to be the one. I mean, Nine out of ten chances. I mean, I'll just line up ten people. Do you think he's the one? Yeah. Do you think he's the one? Yeah. You think he's the one? Yeah. We're on consensus. He's got to be the one. I guess we found the will of God, didn't we? Safety in a multitude of counselors. You better be careful who you're getting counsel from. Just because there's counsel in your favor doesn't mean it's godly counsel. 
They had all chosen Eliab, but God said, no, I'm not looking at him the way you're looking at him. I see him a little bit differently. Matter of fact, he says, I'm going to tell you something about how I choose people. See, you see your calling, brethren, how not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God had chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God had chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. Why would you choose little David? Why would you choose him above Eliab? Why would you choose him above Abinadab? Why did you choose him above all his brethren? I'll tell you why. He says, because that no flesh should glory in his presence. See, God doesn't always choose the one that catches man's eye. You say, I just sit over here in obscurity. Nobody even notices me. My friend, let me tell you something. You're the one he's looking for. Everybody else may be looking for the other guy, but God's still looking for you. In 1 Samuel, God chooses the least. He chooses the forgotten. Think about that. Little David's the, he's the last brother. Look at David. He's forgotten. He's out in the field somewhere taking care of sheep. Hey, summon, hey, 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 make sure you bring your sons with you to the sacrifice. Okay, got it. David, you stay back here. David's probably like, okay. Just do what I'm told. You want to know why David became king of Israel? Because he did what his daddy said. There's too many young people today that want to do something other than what their parents say and think God's going to use them mightily. Doesn't work that way. It's funny how we'll say we'll obey God, but we won't obey the authority over us. We'll submit to God, but we won't submit to the authority over us, whether it's uh, uh, one of our, our parents or whether it's a pastor or whether it's a spiritual leader. We won't submit to that, but we'll submit to God. You just let God talk to me and I'll do it. Whatever. You're lying to yourself. You're deceiving yourself. You fit back in 1 John chapter 1 when the Bible says if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. My friend, you're in sin right now because you're prideful and arrogant. If you will not listen to the authority God's placed over you, you will not listen to God. That's a lie. You say, well, that's your opinion. Yeah, okay, it seems like it's God's. Look at 1 John one time when you get a chance. 1 John chapter 1. And then read over in Hebrews chapter 13 if you really get upset about the pastor having authority. And then go over to Ephesians chapter 6 if you're upset about parents having authority. I'm just saying, it's all through the Bible. David's back there, the forgotten one. David's the least of all the brethren. David's the one that's overlooked. And yet, God didn't forget about him. It's funny how that works, isn't it? We're so quick to want to cover our own bases, to make sure that we're not forgotten, to make sure we're not the least, to make sure someone recognizes us, to make sure someone pats us on the back, to make sure somebody recognizes our skill, our ability, and how valuable we would be to the the machinery here. My friend, may I say that if God thinks you're of value, let me tell you something, he'll use you. Everybody else may forget you, but don't, don't think for a minute God has. He hasn't. And he wants to use you. It's interesting about those brothers. I thought about this just the other day, but do you realize that when David took that food up from his, his daddy and he, he said, okay, listen, I'm going to go up here and, 
take the food that my dad told me to take. And then his brother starts saying, oh, you're so prideful, you're so arrogant, you came up here to see the battle. Isn't it funny? David's the one that's out in the field with the sheep. David's the one that's been forgotten. David's the one that nobody even recognizes exists here when it comes time to anoint for the king. But wait, God recognized him. Hold on, isn't it interesting to you that Eliab and his other brethren are there at the battle and when the Goliath shows up and starts to mock and blaspheme God, they go hide behind rocks and David steps up and says, is there not a cause? Somebody going to shut that big mouth up. Nobody knew who David was. Nobody cared who David was, but God knew who he was. I'm going to tell you something. You may be living in obscurity and you may sit in the pew and think, nobody, God could never use me. Surely the preacher and the leadership would never recognize me. I've got all these talents and I've got all these abilities. You aren't saying that, I hope. But if you're saying, I have no talent and I have no ability, I'm just going to sit here and just kind of stay in my little corner. I'm going to tell you something. God uses the weak things, friend. He's looking for you to do something on his behalf. He wants you to step up. He wants you to do something because he's saying, you're the kind of person I need. Someone that's going to give me the glory, not going to take it for themselves. Boy, David stepped up to the plate and he took that head off of that Goliath. He wrecked him. He ruined his day. None of the other brothers did. We'd all put the armor on King Saul. We'd have put the armor on Eliab. But when David said, I'll take it, we're like, what? <laughs> what? And then Goliath says, what in the world are you sending that puny pipsqueak out here for? Well, he had another thing coming, didn't he? I think of David. I can't help but think of David. Man, when I think about the passage in 1 Corinthians and how God says he uses not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. When he says, I use the foolish things. I use the weak things. I use the base things. I use those things which are despised and those which are not. I can't help but think of David early on in his life. I also think about a fellow by the name of Moses. Turn over to the book of Exodus chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. Now, what an amazing character Moses is. He's brought up in Egypt, of course, by Pharaoh's daughter. And I mean, it would seem and appear that, I mean, he would be a learned man. He would be a man that has great understanding. But may I say that something happened in his life that ultimately shook his confidence. And at some point in his life now, he feels very unusable. Exodus 3 However, there he is on the backside of the desert. Now he's taking care of some sheep. And it says there in chapter 3, verse 1 of Exodus, Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to the Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. You know, it's interesting about Moses. We learn a couple of things. First of all, God doesn't always use those that have never made a mistake. Moses made some mistakes in life. 
Matter of fact, that one mistake he made, I think, really kind of broke his confidence, really kind of wrecked and ruined him in a sense. Look, if you would, very quickly, if you have the time, Exodus chapter 2, just a chapter before, verse 11. Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. A situation arises there. Moses is starting to recognize and realize that he is a Hebrew and that he must step up a little bit. And he thought, man, maybe I can make the difference. And he got a little bit, maybe a little bit ahead of schedule and he took some, too much on himself. And notice what happens here in chapter 2, verse 11. The Bible says, And it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out unto his brethren and looked on their burdens He recognized that he was a Hebrew. He understood that he was one of them. And he goes on to say, and he spied an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, one of his brethren, and he looked this way and that way. What's it saying? He looked around like, is anybody going to see what I'm going to do here in a minute? He saw there was no man and he slew the Egyptian and he hit him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two men of the Hebrews strove together. And he said unto him that did the wrong, Wherefore smitest thou thy fellow? He said, Who made thee a prince and a judge over us? Intendest thou to kill me as thou killedst the Egyptian? Well, he looked around. He didn't think anybody saw him. But word got around fast, didn't it? I don't know if they had the internet in those days or Facebook, but I got to believe that word traveled fast. You know, we used to think that the only time things like, it's only been this last few years that things like that travel. And there's been gossip going around for years, and there's been things being told for years, and word gets around. And in this case, it got around. And the Bible goes on to tell us here, in this particular passage, he says, And Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. Now when Pharaoh heard this thing, and it, it got to Pharaoh's ears, he sought to slay Moses now. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Boy, I'll tell you what, he he made a mistake. Moses really did. He stepped out a little bit too early. He really wasn't in the time frame of God. Now, you can do the right thing at the wrong time. Did you know that? You can do the right things at the wrong time. Now, again, I'm not saying he was right for murdering or killing that man. What I'm saying is he was trying to protect his people. He was trying to deliver his people. He thought he could make a difference because of the position he was in. And you know what? He probably could have to some degree, but it was not on God's time frame yet. But see, God, he doesn't always choose those that have never made a mistake. He sometimes chooses people that made mistakes in life. Have you ever made a mistake? then you've not disqualified. Well, you just don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know. I don't have to. It doesn't matter. I'm telling you. Well, it does matter. But but, uh, there's some things you have to be aware of in the ministry. You can't just let anybody work with children if they've abused a child or something. So a pastor does need to know those things. So I want to make that clear right now. Nobody that's ever been put up for uh, child abuse is going to be working with our children. I don't care even if it's a kind of a trumped-up charge. I mean, it's just one of those things because of the liability of it all. Can't do those things. So yes, you do need to know some things of the past, but I'm talking about even in those situations, God will still use people. When you don't think they can be used, they can, and that's why he can use you too, by the way. God can use people under any circumstance. You've made some big mistakes in your life. Guess what? You're, You're perfect for the job. God can use you. How he uses you is one thing. We'll we'll figure that all out. God will make it clear in the end. 
God chooses those that God chooses those that are not always the most outgoing. Do you know Moses finds himself now because of a lack of confidence. He's on the backside of the desert now. He's run away from authorities. He's trying to hide out. He doesn't want people to know where he's at or what he's doing. He's trying to get away from things. He's in obscurity. Some of you are shy and some of you are backward. You don't want nobody to know where you're at, what you're doing. You're kind of just like being in the shadows. Can I tell you that God can use you? You don't have to have a Mr. Personality plus at, uh, attitude or outlook. You don't have to be Miss Positive, uh, Miss Positive, um, uh, m- no, not Miss Positive, but Miss Outgoing. You don't have to be the one that's always the first one to jump up and say, I love to greet people at the door to be used of God. You'll be amazed what God can do with you in spite of yourself. See, because God wants to get the glory. Do you know who the best person to shake a hand probably is? The one who has to work at it. You say, why is that? Because you have to literally work at it. So you're always like, got to be smiling. Got to extend my hand. Got to say, welcome. We're so glad to have you at Community Baptist Temple today. And some people that are so natural are like, you know, they come up and you say, boy, they've got to be a natural. Look at how easily that, easy that is for them. Let me tell you something. God uses the weak things. See, God wants the glory. Some of you need to be shaking some more hands out there. Some of you need to shake more hands in here. Some of you need to be used of God in a way to impact the life of someone. And listen, you want to be in obscurity. I get it. You're like Moses right now. You just say, you don't know how many mistakes I've made. You don't know where I've come from. You'd be better off, preacher, just to leave me in a seat. The problem is God wants to use you. If you'll let him. And he will use you. Forty years on the backside of the desert, and yet he then finally comes to Moses and says, it's time. Time to pick up and go back to the city. See, God chooses those who aren't the most confident. You don't have to be the most confident. You say, I have no confidence, preacher. I, you teach a Sunday school class, <clears throat> go out soul winning, forget it. I mean, I, I don't have any confidence. I mean, I'm afraid I would just kind of babble about. I wouldn't know what to say. Well, then we'll take the time to teach and train you some, and, and we'll work on it. And I promise you, as you get out there and you realize the need and you recognize the need to maybe get better at what you do, you'll study and you'll prepare more than ever, and you'll find yourself growing in the things of Christ. And before it's over with, you'll get some confidence, not because you are so wonderful, but because the Savior you serve is. And then he gets the glory for it. It's no big deal. It's not hard if somebody's got this natural personality plus to talk to somebody. You know what God really gets glory from? is when somebody that wouldn't normally and does it anyway. I'm just saying, the passage is so clear. God says, not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. God has chosen the foolish things. He's chosen the base things, the weak things, those which are despised and which are not. How do you feel about yourself today? Let me tell you something. God can use you, and he will use you if you'll let him. Moses says, who am I? They won't believe me. They'll have nothing to do with me. God says, oh, I'll take care of that. Uh, well, you know what? I don't speak very well. Oh, that's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll remedy that too. God says, listen, you don't have an excuse that I can't fix, so you might as well stop giving me excuses. Just realize that I want to use you. Will you let me use you? Will you permit me to use you? Will you surrender to me? Will you allow me to take you and do something with you that you don't believe is possible? 
I think of Paul the Apostle. It's funny how God, he chooses the biggest sinners around. Do you know what Paul was? I wonder if anybody could tell me what Paul was before he got saved. He was a murderer of Christians. I heard it out there. He was a murderer of Christians. He'd walk in this room today and he'd say, all right, everybody down on their faces. And then he'd go through and he'd say, hey, listen, renounce the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't. You're going to jail or he'll kill you. Haul you off to jail or kill you. And he had the authority to do it. That's the kind of guy he was. Mr. Personality Plus. And yet, the Bible says, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughters against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and he got authorization. I'm going to go over and collect all those Christians and get rid of them. But then he met Christ on the road to Damascus. Wow. Paul rehearses a portion of that meeting to Agrippa over in the book of Acts chapter 26. Look at how Christ spoke to him. Now again, we find this out later, but look in Acts chapter 26. This is what Paul's telling this murder of Christians. It's an amazing thing. He begins to share with him early on in his ministry what he's going to do and how he's going to do it and what his purpose for existing will be. I mean, Paul had a purpose early on in life, and that purpose was to eradicate Christianity. He did all he, all he could. He put every ounce of strength in eradicating Christianity. And early on, after trusting Christ and receiving his Savior, God says, now listen, I got a new mission for you. I got a new purpose for you. What you are spending your life doing is not what I want you to do now. He goes on and speaks to Agrippa and he says, but rise. And he's saying, here's what the Lord told me, but rise and stand upon thy feet. For I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. What a difference. God's in the business of using some pretty big sinners. I think about this, this particular woman over in Luke chapter 7. The Bible says, And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, stood at his feet behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. With the ointment. Now when the Pharisees, which had bidden him, saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said, Thou hast rightly judged. I want to tell you what, God chooses the biggest sinner. And you say to yourself, yeah, but it's such a big sinner and having all that baggage, how could he ever use me? I'll tell you how, because you'll love him for it. He'll forgive you all your sin, and you'll love him for it. You know what the problem with most of us? We don't really feel that God forgave a whole lot. 
Most of us feel like, well, we were pretty good people when we came to Christ. He got a pretty good deal. I mean, honestly, I'm going to tell you something right now. People that do not show a devotion to Jesus Christ often feel that they did him the favor. Now, they won't say that. But how in the world can you not want to show or reciprocate that kind of love? We love him because he first loved us. He makes it very clear in the passage. He says, you have judged correctly. You've judged rightly. I suppose he to whom he forgave most. That's the one that will love him most. And I'm going to tell you, if you feel that God forgave you all of your sin, if you're really convinced that you would have burned in a devil's hell without Jesus Christ, if you believe that your whole life and your future would have been hopeless and helpless without the Savior, Jesus Christ, my friend, I'm telling you right now, there'll be an element of devotion to Christ in your life. This idea that I don't need him, I don't need his house, I don't need his people, I don't need anything about him. I'll just call on him when I really need him most. Let me tell you something, friend. If you really felt forgiven, if God really did anything supernatural in your life, there's got to be some kind of reciprocation here. There's going to be something inside that says, how can I not love him? And I'm not saying you won't fail him from time to time. I'm not saying you won't sin against him from time to time, but I'm telling you, biblically and scripturally, if you've been forgiven and you feel you've been forgiven most, then you will love most. That's why second generation Christians struggle to be devoted to Christ. Because they've been raised in a home where they didn't have to understand what sin does and how it wrecks and ruins lives. And they don't see their sin as being as big as the guy down here that's a drunkard or the woman that's selling her body on the street. And they think, well, you know, I've always been a Christian. I grew up in a Christian home. I'm a good person. Good people don't go to heaven. Better get saved. You better know Christ. I'm telling you, your sin is just as wicked and just as horrible as the most vile, wretched sinner in the world. See, God chooses the most unlikely. Paul's an unlikely candidate to be the greatest soul winner other than Christ himself. He's the unlikely candidate to be the church planter of the New Testament church. To be the apostle to the Gentiles? Paul, are you kidding me? Very unlikely. But then again, why not? For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But notice not many. There are some. So don't go there either. But God had chosen, he says, the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God had chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. In every case, God used those who both heard and heeded the call. David said yes to God. Moses said yes to God. Paul said yes to God. What wilt thou have me to do? See, God's not necessarily looking for the biggest, brightest, and best. Often he's much more willing to take the weak, the weary, and the worried. When it's all said and done, the only ones that answer the call are the willing. I'm convinced that many believers do nothing for God because they don't feel worthy of it. I believe there's so many more people that want to do something for God, they just don't feel that 
they have anything to offer him. I'm not convinced that everybody that fails to serve the Lord openly or publicly or in the house of the Lord is really somebody that's just being defiant or being rebellious. I don't believe that. I think in many cases they just don't feel that they have anything to offer. But I want you to know today that God is looking for you. He says, listen, is that how you really feel? Because if it is, I want to use you. Because if I get to use you, you'll lift me up. You'll magnify me. You'll glorify me. You'll give me credit for everything. I want to use you. The question is, will we let him? And as a sinner, I want you to know God wants to save you. If you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior today, then I want you to know that in Revelation 3.20, the Bible says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I'll come into him and sup with him and he with me. Man, I mean today, God is knocking on your heart's door. He's seeking admission. He desires to enter into your life and to begin a growing relationship with you. A relationship that will provide you with satisfaction, fulfillment, and purpose for your life. God wants that for you. And if you'll doubt that truth, then let me share his promise. In John 5, 24, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. That includes you today. Say, but I'm just such a wretched sinner. I've sinned so poorly against God. I've done so many things that there's no way he would accept me now. I promise you today, as the word of God goes forth, that the Holy Spirit of God wants to convict you and draw you unto the Lord Jesus. And he's knocking today and he's seeking admission into your life. The question is, will you open your heart's door and permit him to enter? To take up residency in your life? And if you do that, he will forgive your sin. And you will pass from death unto life. And you'll never face the consequences of sin ever as far as eternity is concerned. Oh, there'll be some consequences of your sin on earth when we sin, unfortunately, leave scars. But he'll wash your sin away and you'll never ever be under condemnation. You'll no longer be under sentence of death. Yet that'll be raised and lifted. You will be free indeed. And it's available to you today on a more abundant life. Not just a life, but abundant life. The thief cometh not before to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I am come that they might have life, that they might have it more abundantly. It's your choice. It's your decision. But today, if you aren't convinced that heaven's your home, if you don't have that settled in your life today, I'm telling you there's a Savior that died for you on Calvary. He shed his precious blood. He was buried and rose again. He was the perfect sacrifice because he was the perfect one. He never should have died for his sin. But he stood in your place and took your place. He took my place. And if you allow him and say, Lord, you died for me. I accept what you did as payment for my sin. Save me and forgive me. I'm trusting you today. You know what he'll do? He'll save you. Because that's how simple his salvation is. He just wants you to acknowledge him and turn to him. And he will be glad to indwell you. Change your life completely.
Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. He'll do a miracle in your life if you'll let him. Today, are you saved? I hope you are. And I want you to know today that if you are, God wants to use you. I don't care how low you feel on the totem pole. I don't care how low you feel to the curb. Doesn't matter how, what you've done or where you've been. God's saying, listen, I can salvage your life. I can do something with you that no one else can. You just have to be willing to let me. Let God use you today. Let God use you. And if you're lost today, let God save you from your sin. Become a child of God today. And your life will be transformed and changed forever. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for this time we've had together. Bless us now. Help us. And Lord, be glorified in everything that's said and done today. We need you, Lord. Be with the invitation now in these next moments. There may be someone in the crowd today that's without Christ, that's never trusted you as Savior. May they be saved. And for the believer, there might be someone in the crowd that just says, you know what, in my condition, my state, my situation, there's no way God could use me. Well, if you're weak today, he can use you. If you're base, he could use you. If you're the one that no one else seems to think can be used, then guess what? You're the one that God can use. Now, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would use each one now. Father, I know, Father, that we need you. So right now, as we're still praying, I'm talking to you, though. Won't you come today? Believer, won't you come and say, Lord, I just don't know if you can use me, but I'm willing to say, use me. What I got is yours. You can have it. I'll be willing to step out and, by faith and let you use me. I'll, 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 I'll find who's in charge of the greeters. I'll start greeting. I'll, I'll even maybe go, I'll go out soul winning. I'll, I'll, I'll take steps to maybe go to a training class. I'll do some of the things that will prepare me for use because if you're willing, I am too. Now, Father, again, bless us in this time of invitation and be with the saved and the lost alike. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's